You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. This morning, we are going to dig into First and Second Chronicles, which is a really long single scroll that was broken into two books. We're going to do all of them today, and we aren't going to be here till midnight. I promise you that. But before we get there, change is constant. They say change is the only thing we can really rely on, right? Because it's always happening. Our lives are always in some state of transition. But change is not always abrupt. I think it's a lot like aging. I mean, some changes do happen quick, but a lot of times it's really this slow and steady dance between waiting for change and the actual change happening. You know, effectively a marriage between things are shifting and I'm feeling it and sensing it and ooh, The shift has finally happened. And the problem with that, or at least my opinion of the problem with that, is that the waiting for change is actually the really stressful part, and it feels like the really long part, right? Because when we're waiting for change, we have to come face-to-face with our own lack of control. All the things we can't control, can't change, can't do on our own. We're just in the season of waiting and sitting. We come face to face with our limits. We come face to face with our humanity. And to remind us of what this dynamic, this internal tension is like, I have for you this morning one of my favorite children's books by one of my favorite children's authors. And if you get a chance, that's another fan favorite of our family. Even though Piggy had this amazing surprise in store for Elephant, Elephant struggled to manage his patience and his emotions while they were going through the change um, because it made him feel vulnerable. He, He wanted to know what Piggy had for him, and the process of trying to wait for it said Piggy, or Piggy wouldn't tell him, and so Elephant's just sitting there with this internal wrestling saying, I, I can't change any of the dynamic, and I'm just stuck here in this internal tension, and I don't enjoy it. I don't want to live with the unknown. And when we don't have control, when we are forced to live within our physical, our emotional, our mental limits, we become aware of how vulnerable we are. And that can be really, really disarming to us. I want you to think for a moment about something you are waiting for this morning. It could be a diagnosis, a baby, healing, perhaps a promotion or a change at work, a spouse, a bill, a check. We're all waiting for something. If you're Dan, you can tell a friend. (laughs) You can even whisper it to the person next to you if you want to be so bold. But the reality is we're all waiting for something. And as you have come face to face with your lack of control in that situation, how are you waiting? How are you waiting? Are you anxious or peaceful? Are you scared? Maybe you're indifferent. Maybe you've been waiting so long, like elephant, a whole day, that you've become apathetic. It's not even worth it anymore. The Bible has so much to say about this. In fact, the Bible is an entire story about waiting. If we think about it, the whole book and everything kind of before it and after it is this story of waiting for God to redeem 
the humanity that he created to bring back the, all of creation, all of the world to goodness. And within that big overarching story of waiting are tons of other little stories about waiting. We see the Apostle Paul in prison waiting for his chance to go to Rome and plead his case about Christ in front of basically all of the officials there. We see Sarah in the Old Testament waiting so desperately for a baby and making some really dodgy choices because of it. We see Ruth coming back with her mother-in-law Naomi and saying we're in utter poverty and we could be, you know, our life could be on the bottom even more than it already is in an instant and waiting on God to bring things into their favor. The Bible is full of stories of people waiting and more often than not, Within each of those stories is the critical point that says how we wait actually impacts our lives more than the change we're waiting for. How we wait impacts our life more than the change that we're waiting for. And so when we're vulnerable, we basically can go one of two ways as we're waiting. We can either double down in our faith. Right? We can say, God, I don't understand it. I don't like it. I feel like my life is out of control, but you are the only steady thing I have. And so, like Ruth, I am going to just wait on you, even though I'm not sure if I'm going to make it till tomorrow. Or we can let that vulnerability churn up anxiety and fear and doubt, and we can take back control of our life, which only ever really makes a mess, like Sarah, who said, I want a baby so bad, I'm going to force my slave to have a baby with my husband. And you can just imagine the Maury television show that would have popped off if he had existed back then because of her anxiety and fear while she was waiting. You know, God, we talk about this all the time. God wants our lives to go well, right? He's not interested in you struggling. Like he's a good dad and good parents are like, I really want my kids to never struggle, We know that that's not true, they're going to, but we really don't want them to. And the same is true for the Lord. He says, I don't want you to struggle, and I don't want you to make mistakes in life that are just going to heap pain onto you. I would much rather you listen to me and avoid it as much of that as is possible for you. I want you to be able to withstand times of uncertainty and waiting with peace, with joy, with hope, with stability. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 27, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. What a gift. And the peace I give is a gift the world can't give. So don't be troubled or afraid. He says, my very presence with you, my gift of the Holy Spirit, is meant to give you the ability to have a peaceful mind and a peaceful heart in a very unpeaceful, unstable, and unsettled world. And so the only way we can enjoy internal stability, the only way we can wait better than elephant, is by trusting in God's character. And the whole book of First and Second Chronicles, the, the whole scroll there, actually explains to us how. And so this morning's message is going to have some context in it, but most of it is just pure application provided by the chronicler himself. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the many ways that you come to stabilize us in an unstable world and the way that your spirit gives us peace of mind and peace of heart. And I pray that you would bring that to life for us in a new way this morning, Holy Spirit, as we navigate the the word that you would 
anchor us again. In Jesus' name, amen. So in your modern Bible, you can flip there if you want. Right after First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, you will come to First and Second Chronicles. And it is a really long book. And it was originally one whole scroll. Some guy sat there and wrote out all of that text in some fashion. Um, and it's, a, it's so long because it's a summary of the entire Old Testament. He literally starts in the beginning, 1 Chronicles 1.1, talking about Adam. And the last section in 2 Chronicles 36, he talks about, uh, he ends with King Cyrus releasing Israel to go from exile back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls of the city. And in between is this huge recap where he basically reiterates all of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, a huge chunk of the Torah, Psalms, Proverbs. And so when we get to that part of our Bible and we get, we get into 1 and 2 Chronicles, it's after a ton of narrative and we're like, I don't, do I need to read this again, God? Like, have you ever had that conversation where you're like, I can just skim this part, right? Like, I don't have to read it word for word. It wouldn't be, you wouldn't be the only person if you get to Chronicles and you think this is unnecessarily long and redundant, and so I'm just going to jump on. But Chronicles wasn't originally there. It was actually intended as the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so it makes a lot of sense that it's a recap, but that actually wasn't even its original purpose. It was written a few hundred years after Israel's homecoming from exile. So remember Imani's message last week, Ezra and Nehemiah? This is the time frame that this book, this scroll was compiled in. And it's for people who are facing a reality that doesn't look anything like what the prophets promised them. Have you, have we ever looked a little bit at our own lives and felt like, "Mm, this doesn't match up to the way I thought it would if I followed God? Like somehow I thought things would be better or quieter or more stable. Or maybe that's just me and then I'll own that in front of all of you this morning. That Sometimes I'm like, God, I just feel like I'm your kid and I'm doing the right thing and maybe it should be a little bit simpler than that. Well, that's exactly how Israel feels in this book. The great prophetic hope that was that the city and the temple would be rebuilt, that God would come to live among his people, that the messianic king would come, and all of the nations would gather together in Jerusalem and experience the peace of this messianic king. Like, the world was going to be set right. That's the prophetic hope. And all of the physical signs have been put into place. Israel's back from exile. They've rebuilt the temple. And the walls of the city have been put back together albeit not as great as they were before. But the Messiah still hasn't come to establish himself as king. No worries. And, oh, let me get myself back in. And God hasn't come home to the temple. The world is still a wild mess. In fact, Israel's still under foreign oppression from Persia. They're not even free. And so with each of the days that these promises go unfulfilled, that Israel is waiting and they have no control over when the Messiah comes or when God comes home, they're beginning to feel anxiety and pressure and stress and fear, and they're starting to become apathetic. God, is it even worth waiting? Did you maybe even give give up on us completely? Is there any point in following you? And basically, the chronicler sees this. He sees his peers thinking this way, and he says, every time in the past that we have doubted God, it has been a disaster. And so he writes this book to them and says, please do not, please do not give up on God. Please do not 
run away out of fear and anxiety. He says, double down in your faith. And I'm giving you this book to help sustain your hopes and prayers while we all wait together. And the first thing he does to help them do that is he instructs them to look back. See, looking back on what God done, has done helps to renew our confidence in his character. It helps to reassure us of his love, and it helps to revive our expectation that he will provide for us. The vulnerability of waiting tends to cause us to become so hyper-focused on what we're waiting for, right? That job, that, that change, that whatever. We are like zeroed in on it so much that we begin to forget about everything that we've seen from God in the past. We forget how he's provided for us protected, healed, or just taking care of us. And when we forget, it causes us to begin to doubt that he might be able to do it again. And when we doubt, that's what opens the door to all those feelings and emotions that ultimately can rock our confidence in who God is. They can rock our faith and say, "Mm, maybe this time he's just not big enough. Or maybe it's just not worth following anymore. And that's when we start to try and take back control of our life because we're so unstable. We're just determined to find a way through it, which never really goes well. So one of the most effective ways that we can maintain trust in God or have our confidence in him renewed is to look back at what he's done. And so the chronicler does that. And the first nine books of Chronicles are just genealogies. Isn't that wonderful? Just genealogies. This person begat this person who begat this person. And you're like, why does this matter? And the point of genealogies is something we don't culturally understand. Because when was the last time you read one that wasn't your own? Like maybe in history class once upon a time, right? But in Jewish culture, genealogies play more than just a family tree kind of role. They are actually super succinct ways at cataloging stories. And so the chronicler includes them as the first nine books of Chronicles to just highlight all of the main characters because what that would have done for the people is activate all kinds of mental links and collective stories from their past that said God has done all these things. You know, instead of sitting down and telling the whole Old Testament, he's like, I can do all of it in warp speed by just reminding you of Noah and Moses and Joshua and Abraham and Ruth and yatta, 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 yatta. And so that's why he includes them, because he wants them to stop and remember, our dad is really cool. When was the last time we did that? When was the last time you thought back on how good God has been to you? April's like, recently? All the time. Well, amen. That is, that, is, that is the point of what the chronicler is saying in these first nine books. He's like, we have to keep looking back because it reminds us of how generous and caring and aware God is of us. I had to do it this week. I was having a bit of a rough week, and I... I Got to talk to both my spiritual director and to Perla. And on both instances, I found the Holy Spirit kind of taking me on this memory trail back to the ways that God has taken care of me and my family for decades. I mean, my family hasn't been around for dececades, but I have. I am a millennial. (laughs) And in all of that, I kept thinking of all these cool times where God provided 
car or a check that got me to college or he provided a place to live. He provided a job. He, he just healed my heart after really hard relationships. And it reminded me that he enjoyed taking care of me then. So why wouldn't he enjoy taking care of my family now? What's changed? No, nothing, because God's character is unchanging. My circumstances may look different, but he is not different. And that means I can be assured or confident or trust in his character to continue to sustain us, to continue to help me endure in this upside-down, inside-out world. But sometimes let's just be honest, we struggled to look back. You know, you get really deep into that place of like anxiety and fear and you're like, I don't even want to talk about it, God. And that's okay because the second thing the chronicler does is remind us to look at Jesus. Now, Jesus was not there yet. That was part of the point. The Messiah had not yet come. And so the people are sitting there like, well, is this Messiah even going to be worth it? Like, why are we waiting on this guy that we've been really waiting on since the very beginning of our family story all the way back to Abraham? And so what the chronicler does is he instead focuses in chapters 10 to 29 on King David. And he says, remember the best king that we've ever known? And like, if you've read the Bible, David was a really great king. And he was also like, really had some struggles, right? There's some adultery and some murder and some spicy family dynamics in there. It's a good read if you haven't been there before. And so... We know that he's not a perfect king, but the chronicler actually doesn't talk about all of the stuff that David did wrong. And it's not because he's trying to pretend David's perfect. What he's trying to do is say, the best we've ever known, the greatest human king we've ever had, the Messiah is going to be infinitely better. He is going to be so good that he is worth the wait because we've never known a king who didn't lead us somehow to destruction. And he says, if we put our hope in this king, this is the only promise we have that we won't end up in more chaos and crisis and pain. And that, my friends, my fellow Israelites, is worth waiting for. And so they were looking ahead, putting their hope in this king that they they didn't even have an image of other than a a literary picture of his personality and his, you know, he's going to be a humble king and he's going to be a generous king and he's going to be a compassionate king like a good shepherd. But we have the privilege of living on the other side of that promise coming to, coming to pass. We know what Jesus looks like. He is perfect and good and kind and generous and supportive and truthful. And he doesn't let us live in our messes, but he comes to raise us up out of them and actually give us a whole new way of being. Not just a whole new life, a whole new way of existing on this planet so that we can be close to the Father and we can begin to live as if heaven and earth were not still separated. And we're told in Colossians, because that is who Jesus is, that he shows us the full picture of God's heart. And so the chronicler says, you guys got to look ahead. You got to hold on to this messianic promise. But we, we actually look back onto the goodness of who Jesus was and we say, God, I know you're trustworthy because that's who Jesus is. And even if I feel like, Father God, I'm a little confused about your personality because of my own father dynamics or whatever, I can look at Jesus and you tell me that he is the perfect picture of the invisible God, which means what he looks like is what you look like. And if I can trust Jesus, then I can trust you. 
So looking back helps us to remember how good God is. Looking at Jesus helps us to be renewed in our confidence of how good God is. And then we have to think about those things and wrestle with them as we consider that how we wait will impact our life more than the change we're waiting for. And the chronicler really wanted to remind his people of that. And so the second book, all verses one to 30, or chapters one to 36, are basically a comparison chart of the kings who loved God and waited on him from Judah and the kings who didn't love God and didn't wait on him from Judah. And he just nixed all of the northern kings because he's like, they're all terrible. So we're not even going to include them. So they're just forgotten. And what he does is he says, the kings that trusted God led us to good things. We had peace. We didn't have war. We didn't have poverty. We didn't have destruction. We had real worship of the Lord. And it brought life to our entire society. But the kings who didn't trust God who tried to do this whole king thing on their own, made bad political alliances out of fear. They allowed poverty and corruption and injustice to run rampant. They used the law for their own gain and hurt us. And he says, we have to be really careful in this season of tension while we're waiting for the prophet to come, we're waiting for the Messiah, we're waiting for God to come home, not to make a decision in our desolation that will actually cause destruction. Never make a decision, a significant decision in desolation. Don't quit a job, don't end a relationship, don't go spend all your money if things are not going well. Because we aren't usually thinking with the fullness of our brain because our emotions are so interwoven in those moments. And that's what the chronicler is trying to tell his people. He's like, don't, don't go and quit your job right now, guys. We're going to be waiting for a while. And the truth is, they were going to be waiting for a long time. Consider this. The people of Israel li- that, that the chronicler was writing to lived and died waiting. And future generations are going to live and die waiting for these promises of God. In fact, he emphasizes this. We don't know that the chronicler knew that. I don't think there's anything to say that he understood that. But he has been given enough information by the Holy Spirit that he chooses to end the book, the scroll, with a dot, 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 an ellipsis. It's not even a complete sentence because he just trails off like this is going to be where we are for a while. So I can't, it's a story in search of an ending because there is no ending when his book concludes. And our text misses it because it's translated into English and they just put, most of us have a um, exclamation point at the end of the text. But it should have said, Second Chronicles 36, 23, it's Cyrus speaking. He's like, whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God be with him and let him go up. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Okay. And because the chronicler just understands that we're going to be in this space of going up and waiting for God to come home, and we don't know when that's going to happen. And so if you're waiting for an end date, if your hope is in the period, if your hope is when the change comes, then the likelihood of us being able to sustain isn't great because we don't know if we'll ever see the period. The The change that we might be waiting for in our lives could happen tomorrow. It could happen after we die. It might happen for our great-grandchildren. 
we don't know. And so the question is, are we going to still live committed to the Lord if we have to wait and never see an end? Or are we going to give up on him? And that's what the chronicler is saying. He's like, guys, look back and be renewed in your confidence of God. Look ahead to the Messiah and be renewed in your confidence of God. Because if you don't, I don't know how you're going to make it till those things actually happen. Because true hope, biblical hope, isn't rooted in our circumstances getting all put back together in a nice neat box. They're rooted in how deeply we trust God's character. The only way that we are going to live well, us, today, the only way we're going to have peace of mind and peace of heart is by trusting God. And if you are struggling to do that, then you have to practice what the chronicler has said, which is to regularly look back on how God has taken care of you. And I would encourage you to write that down. If you're like me and you aren't as technologically savvy as you should be for your age, physically put it in a book, right? Like, so Tim and I started doing this our first year that we got married, we have a book that we keep right underneath our television. I guess that way we see it often. I don't know what that says about our TV time. But anyway, we have a book, and in it we recap the year on December 31st, and we pray about all the things we want to see God do the new year. And we have a record of that. We write all of the ways God has blessed us that year. Our kids and, and things that have happened all around. We even write down what's happening in the world. And then we begin to pray ahead, and we also have a little spot, a little box on the side where we pray about the next 5, 10, 15 years as much as we feel like, you know, we can dream ahead with the Lord. If you are not doing this regularly, then it will help you to really stay firm in your faith. And if you don't want to write it down physically, text it to yourself. Put a note on your phone. Make a Facebook post for those that still do that. Whatever you need to do so that you have a record, so that it's not something you have to recall and struggle through, but you can quickly read it and say, that is my story and God was good to me. So jot that down. And then the second piece is always, always look at Jesus. If you have a hard time looking at the Father and saying you're trustworthy, the Chosen series is great. It is not meant to be a verbatim from the Bible. This is exactly the text. It is a bit fictionalized, so go in knowing that, but don't just throw it out with the bathwater because you get an opportunity to see God in a way that we often struggle, which is as compassionate, present, loving, and capable. And so I'd encourage you, look back, look at Jesus, and cultivate those practices regularly, and they will sustain you through the seasons of difficulty and waiting. Philippians reiterates this because what the Old Testament said, the New Testament repeats, and the early church was going through this season of waiting after Jesus goes back to heaven, and they're like, oh, we're just waiting for him to come back, which is where we are all waiting as well. And they said to one another in Philippians 4, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And his peace will guard your hearts and minds, just what Jesus said in John, as you live in Christ Jesus. Peace of heart and peace of mind. Man, in a world where I never know what I'm going to see when I turn the news on, it doesn't get any better than knowing that my God is with me through all of it. 
First and Second Chronicles speaks deeply to our ability to feel safe in this world. And our world is not safe. We talked about that at length in the wisdom books. God did not create this world to be without danger. It exists. And so you and I, as followers of Jesus, need to make sure we don't have rose-colored glasses because they will not help us when things are not going well. We can look that stuff square in the eye and say, I'm not figuring this out because I, I know things. I can look this dead in the eye because I follow Jesus and he is good. And so the question I want you to ask as you're waiting for whatever you're waiting for is this. Hey, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Okay. We need to put the responsibility back on our God because he wants it. Right? He wants to help us. He wants us to trust him. And so instead of wringing our hands, we go to him in prayer with confidence, knowing he loves us and will give us direction and say, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? We're going to move into ministry time, but before we do, I want to give you, no, no, 60 seconds to write down your takeaway from today. You can text it to yourself. You can jot it on your phone, but I want you to write down the thing you need from this message that's going to carry you forward from today. It's a kinesthetic activity, Dan. <laughs> I'm going to watch the timer for all my kinesthetic people to do it now. <laughs> But seriously, if there was one thing that the Lord spoke to you from this message today that you're like, I needed to hear that, write it down because let's be honest, we're human. There's a lot of other things we got to do. The moment we walk out that door, we're probably apt to forget it. Like I'm already thinking, oh, I have to get my kids lunch. <laughs> and then we'll pray. The one thing that you want to take away from today's message Sure. That he is. It never feels like that <laughs> until after he's come and you're like, oh, yeah, that was just, just on time. Yep. All right. Once you've written that down, you can tuck it somewhere that will be safe where you can look at it this week. And I will invite you, if you are physically able, to stand as we invite the Holy Spirit to come.